This week on Golazzo, Tempi Scuri, Perli Azzurri. As Italy stumble again, we decide to wobble our screens all the way back to World Cup 2006. A time of heroes, a time of legends, a time of un corpo grosso. They were different times. Tony Blair was still Prime Minister. Talladega Knights and Crocs were putting actual smiles on people's faces. And the notion of a football podcast was only just in its very inception. Well, as 32 nations gathered in Germany for the World Cup that summer, many would have smiled at the notion that Italy were about to win it. But win it they did. And in the aftermath of this week's disastrous performances by the Azuri, that's what we're heading back to now in search of some comfort. James Horncastle is here with me. Hello. James, you were in Italy Mm -hmm. for the 2006 World Cup. What were expectations like as the tournament kind of got underway? Well, it was a kind of peculiar um, set of circumstances in which the national team found themselves in. There always was confidence that Italy went into a tournament as one of the favourites as befit their history and tradition in the World Cup. But given the storm clouds that were gathering over the national team, I know there have been comparisons drawn with 1982 when you had the Totonero scandal. Calciopoli and everything else around it was, I think, something else. I remember, for example, you had, should Cannavaro be captain? Should he be stripped of the, the armband? Should Lippi resign as, as coach? Should Gianluigi Buffon even go to the World Cup? Because mm. he was involved uh, in, a, in, in a completely separate investigation about his alleged betting habits at the time. So all of that had the potential to destabilise Italy, but um, you know, they ended up coming together. But what I would say is that there, there was confidence in that team just purely because for the two years leading up to that tournament, they'd been very, very good. They beat Germany and yeah. I think Florence, Florence yeah. um, completely played them off the park. And and Lippi would later say that that foundation always gave him the kind of belief that notwithstanding the, the tempest in which they, they found themselves in, that they should draw a lot of kind of self-esteem from from that. Well, it was basically the worst preparations possible for a team going into a, a World Cup, a real seismic shock to the world of Italian football, a scandal directly involving, what, 11 ma- members of the squad and, and the manager too. You had careers in doubt, you had clubs in doubt. The day of the Germany semi-final, the, the prosecutor calling for four sides, Juventus, Milan, Lazio and Fiorentina, all to be relegated. And amidst all of that, I mean, almost to illustrate the psychological impact on those involved... You had a, 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 who, a man who was a key member of that Juventus squad at the heart of the storm, Gianluca Pesotto, jumping off the top of, uh, attempting suicide off, mm. off the top of Juve's headquarters. Yeah, and that, that was extraordinary because in the lead up to that, he was on TV every night, you know, talking about how Italy had done, how they were preparing, his experience, for example, of, uh, of this Totti Del Piero kind of competition for a place in the starting 11. And then all of a sudden, yeah, this this news broke that morning, and the Juventus players flew back to Turin to be by his from bedside. Germany. From Germany, mm. yeah, yeah, extraordinary. Anyway, so the group stages get underway, and it's clear that Italy are going to 
make a go of this. But at that point, I don't think they were really standing out particularly. There was the uh, there was an opening 2-0 win over Ghana. That was followed by that 1-1 draw with USA, which saw Daniele De Rossi uh, rearranging Brian McBride's features mm. and earning himself a four-game suspension as a, as a result. And then the 2-0 victory, the final group game over the Czech Republic, which, which saw arguably Italy's top defender, Alessandro Nesta go out injured once again, a man with a, an appalling run of bad luck with, with tournaments. And in his place, Marco Materazzi, who I think it's fair to say was regarded as a bit of a, a walking time bomb yeah. by most Italy fans. Absolutely. I mean, he was, he was more famous for either hacking people down, scoring fantastic own goals, or just scoring, scoring goals. I think, remember, was it when he was at Perugia? He broke uh, Jacinto Facchetti's record for the number of goals scored by a defender right. in a, in a single season. But yeah, that was that was a, a huge moment of doubt. I, I remember Nesta had a a fitness test on the de- on the morning of the semi final, and Lippi was was telling him that if you pass it, you will start. So yeah, that was wow. How that, differently it might have turned out. Yeah, I can't imagine Nesta saying anything to Zidane. Uh, no, <laughs> no. I mean, that was again one of the first um, stories I had to cover was the the. Uh, case that Materazzi brought against uh, a number of tabloids in this country for right. re- reporting what uh, or misreporting what he'd said. Yeah. So um, saying it was mother, not sister. Yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, we'll, we'll come to all of that. But so the group stages, Italy go, go through and, and two fine victories and a slightly muddled draw. They then get uh, a nice draw in terms of their last sixteen opponent, Australia. But 94 minutes in, once again, their campaign is on the brink of disaster because it's still nil-nil. Admittedly, a red card for Matarazzi... <laughs> yep, playing to type. Has, uh, has, ...has left them with 10 men for most of the match. But 94 minutes in, Fabio Grosso finds an Australian to trip over mm-hmm. and, and up steps Francesco Totti. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they admit that that penalty should never have been given. Lucas Neal was very unlucky to be penalised but again this was the sort of beginning of Grosso's impact on the on the tournament um, and uh, Totti who's a real doubt to, to actually make it to the World Cup because at the end of February he'd practically broken his leg and torn the ligaments in his ankle really really bad injury and Lippi had sort of gone again to his bedside and said look if you can play before the end of the season I will take you it doesn't matter what condition you're in and mm. he played I think in the Coppa Italia final and Lippi took him, and this was kind of Totti's sort of one big moment in the tournament. And what a moment it was. I think one of the standout moments, for all, that, all the things that happened later on, that close-up of Totti's eyes mm. as he stares at Schwarzer in the Australian goal in the 94th minute, about to take the shot. And then this. Totti contra Schwarzer. I don't think you'd want anyone else to take that penalty because Totti, remember what, Euro 2000 uh, against Holland, where you know he again sort of is, is doing his about to, to walk to the spot and, and tells everyone he's going to lob the keeper, um, and uh, they all think he's crazy, and he, he managed to keep it together and do it. Again, the nerve of Totti, I think, uh, just uh, incredible. That booked Italy a uh, quarter-final clash with Ukraine. Shevers Ukraine. Yeah. Shevers Ukraine yeah. and a 3-0 win. At which point, James, did you or those around you in Italy start to think that this was going to be the year or dare to think that? Well, I think uh, when you get to uh, the semi-finals, there's a, there's a sense that anything can happen. Right. Um, and Except that when the semi-finals came after a 3-0 win over 
Ukraine, they were against Germany. Yeah, a little bit of context here. Germany and Italy had been involved in a World Cup semi-final before, hadn't they? Yeah, and that was, uh, what, the game of the century? The game of the century, La Partita yeah. del Circolo, 1970, mm. when a fairly interesting and eventful 90 minutes was followed by an absolutely bonkers extra time. Five goals scored in the Tempi Supplementari, and Italy emerging victorious, going on to the final where, of course, they got completely torn apart by yeah. And then, of course, there's the 1982 final, uh, which reduced uh, a young Raphael Honigstein to tears when, uh, again, producing one of not only the great moments in Italian football history, but World Cup history as well in Tardelli's uh, celebration. Right. um, Which we'd get a kind of redux of in uh, in this game with, uh, with Fabio Grosso. Absolutely. 36 years after that 1970 semi-final, Germany had never overcome Italy in a major international tournament. However, on their side, they had the fact that they'd never lost at the Westfalen Stadion in, in Dortmund, yeah. where the semi-final was being played. They were hosting this World Cup because, once again, nobody managed to score in the 90. We were getting close to the end of Itepi Supplementari. And it's fair to say that Italy were desperate. I mean, sometimes you'll see the Azuri playing for a draw or whatever. Here, they were desperate to avoid going to spot kicks against Klinsmann's side. Yeah, and... Uh this, again, I think produced one of the most uh, memorable moments of, of, of that campaign. What, two minutes before the end of extra time, uh, Pirlo, who for Lippi was the, the key man in, uh, in this Italy side, with uh, a reverse pass for Grosso. And uh, yeah, and the rest is history. Pirlo, 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 goes Fabio Caressa. Because you, you're staring at it, you're thinking, but take a shot, take a shot, please take a shot. And instead, this delicious little cut ball in for Grosso. Well, of course, I mean, the reason why they're calling him to take the shot is because he got their first goal of the tournament against Ghana, which was a, a great effort from outside of the box. And this was Pirlo um, at 28 when he, he was maturing into the kind of not only a world-class player, but an, an all-time great. And, uh, and boy, would they, they miss him in, in 2010 when, when, when he got injured in the lead-up to, to that because his impact on, on this tournament, I know that Cannavaro would get the, uh, the Ballon d'Or Buffon was supposed to be his big rival for it, but really Pirlo. And Zidane was named the player of the tournament. Yeah. Yeah. Pirlo, though, for you, rather than say well, Matarazzi. No, look, I mean, as I said, the players who got uh, recognised um, in the most prestigious kind of award ceremonies were Cannavaro and Buffon. Um, but for me, the kind of three faces of this World Cup campaign are those of Fabio Grosso, who, as we mentioned, wins the penalty against Australia, scores the decisive goal in extra time against Germany, and then the decisive penalty in the World Cup final. you got Materazzi, who, as you said, came in for Nesta, was seen as a liability. He scores against the, the Czechs. He then gets sent off the next game, second time that Italy had gone down to 10 men in the tournament. So really putting themselves up against it. He comes back and is magnificent in the final, scoring the equalising goal and the penalty. So if you count the goal he scored in the penalty shootout, finishes as Italy's top scorer in the tournament. And then there is Pirlo, um, who, yeah, I think that reverse pass is the uh, gesto tecnico 
of the of the tournament. Although actually, uh, shortly after that, so we're now into like the last sixty seconds of the game, and the Germans are desperately trying to equalise. And there's this moment which Cannavaro says he thinks earned him the Ballon d'Or yeah. that year, while Podolski is just shaping out and just outside the area to try and unleash a rocket at Buffon, who comes screaming past him to nick the ball away. But Fabio Cannavaro and, and, and off Italy go, and you got Del Piero scoring at the other end from that, and. German fans are in tears. <laughs> but the most beautiful... I, see, I prefer this goal to Grosso's goal. Oh, yeah? Uh, because of that, you see the Berlin Wall really come to the fore and the ball bounce forward. And then it's Giladino who plays a wonderful kind of back heel to Del Piero. And I don't know what it is. I think it's the camera angle. is right over Del Piero's shoulders. He opens his body mm. up and then he bends it round the goalkeeper. And this, again, is just a reminder of how bold Lippi was throughout this tournament. Now, Italy have this this reputation for Catinaccio playing defensive football, and it's true that in this tournament they didn't concede a goal from open play. The only, uh, if you want to count one, is Christian Zaccato's own goal against, uh, against the States. The rest is, I mean, in this game... Italy players were looking to the sidelines saying, Lippi, what are you doing? You keep throwing on attacking players. Our legs are going. You know, you keep on throwing striker after striker on, including Del Piero. And this is, this is again, one of the defining features of, of Italy winning this World Cup because they didn't have a Paolo Rossi, you know, someone who could win the golden boot. They didn't have a Toto Schilacci. Tony, who was supposed to do that, really only had one game in which he shot. Exactly, mm-hmm. against Ukraine. Tony had just scored 31 goals in Serie A, first time anyone had done that since Angelillo in the end of the 50s but every striker that Lippi took scored so Yaquinta in the first game Giladino against the States Inzaghi against uh, the Czechs then Tony against uh, Ukraine and then Del Piero who'd been likening himself to uh, Achilles on the eve of the tournament saying that Achilles apparently used to go off into the hills overlooking a battlefield and then just come down when the moment demanded. Right. And this is this was his moment to be uh, to be Achilles. Right. That's an extraordinarily dangerous uh, <laughs> yeah. to, to, to take on but but, yeah. but there you go. His 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 yeah Del Piero's knee as a yeah. Achilles heel. Well yeah. indeed or indeed he, he, the whole player if you think back to say you know, Euro 2000, the, the, the final there. Mm. Um, anyway, uh, on this occasion, he did not miss. So then, Italy are in the final, which in my mind, of course, boils down to Matarazzi saying something <laughs> to Zidane and Zidane sticking one on him. And fair play... Zidane. He didn't just kind of incline his head or make a stag-like gesture. He really takes the wind out of Matarazzi. And uh, yeah, this is the what the first uh, first instance of video assistant refereeing. Yes, in, uh, <laughs> yeah, unofficially so in football. Yeah. All right. Um, previous to that, Zidane had scored from the spot. Yeah, just and about. What a penalty! Yeah. I mean, the, the, again, we talked about Totti, but the nerve that Zidane shows here to Kukiayo, spoon uh, Gigi Buffon, and it, for it to kiss the bottom of the bar and only just yeah. cross the line. And who equalises? Matirazzi. Then we have this moment. You mentioned the, the libel action he brought against uh, English papers mm. after they 
suggested that he had insulted Zidane's mother. His version is he said, or Zidane had complained about him grabbing his shirt and said, if you want my shirt, I'll give it to you afterwards. And Matarazzi replied, I prefer your sister, <laughs> with a disparaging yeah. uh, comment about Zidane's sister. And uh, the rest, very much history. Indecente Zidane. No, non l'ha visto, gliel'hanno detto. Rosso per Zidane che se ne va giustamente sotto la doccia, sotto la doccia, sotto la doccia. This time anyway, there was no avoiding penalties for Italy, a nation who had never previously been successful at a, 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 a tournament shootout, knocked out of their own World Cup in the semi-final against Argentina in 1990, lost the final in 1994 against Brazil, lost to the eventual champions then the next tournament in 1998, and now here they are against France again with a nation standing agog in the midst of what had been the darkest summer for Italian football mm. in decades to be on poised on the brink of greatness. Yeah, and you mentioned 98, but what about 2000 uh, right. as well? Again, same opponent had got the better of them. And, you know, that Italy side in... in um, Holland and Belgium uh, probably deserved to win that uh, that European Championship. That was Totti's best tournament as a, a as an Italy player. But yeah, again, you know, David Trezeguet, um, who'd been one of the heroes that night in two thousand, kind of doing what Zidane did, uh, hammering the ball against the bottom side of the bar. But it uh, it didn't go in, Jimbo. It didn't go in this time. Where were you watching the final? Chico Massimo. Oh, you were there? Yeah, yeah. Unbelievable. So there were, what, 200,000 people there? Yeah. No, I, I was in on the Farringdon at the Guardian's offices. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think yours was better. Yeah. 200,000 people. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that was... Uh, this, this, by the way, is the moment when Fabio Grosso's penalty goes in. <laughs> what happened then? Uh, got showered in beer. Uh, <laughs> it was all kind of uh, real kind of flares being lit off. So like you, you know, again, kind of just cord out of. Uh, you got the smell of that in the air. Yeah, all, almost riotous scenes, uh, really. But um, yeah, no, it was uh, probably, probably my, my, my yeah, probably my best football experience. Really, really anything yeah. would anything would top that. Okay, they were. I mean, it was all kicking off all over. Italy and beyond, they were jumping. Certainly, Farringdon, it was uh, <laughs> red hot. Uh, Trevi Fountain, yeah. everyone, everyone was diving in there. It, just extraordinary, extraordinary scenes. And, uh, you know, ones that I fear we're not going to see again for a, a fair while because the current state of the Italian national side, we'll touch on that in a second or two, a little bit parlous. What, what then would be your abiding memory if you had to sum up one thing about that World Cup? I think... Uh the final two minutes of extra time against against Germany because um, both of those goals I think have become iconic and likewise and Grosso's celebration Grosso, as much as the goal Grosso's celebration yeah his kind of story um, you know someone who'd, who who was playing for Palermo at the time was was not a big name yeah a little bit like Materazzi really that these two guys have become the the faces of that World Cup without mm. really well going into 2006 having a reputation to match some of their teammates. You would have not gone into that tournament saying, 
the two most decisive players are going to be Grosso and Materazzi. Indeed not. And another of the iconic images, um, Gennaro Gattuso grabbing Marcello Lippi by the throat and shaking him violently. Uh, one of my favourite moments again is is when uh, Totti finally gets his hands on the uh, on the World Cup uh, and puts like the trickle over his head as though it's a veil and is looking into it as though it's some kind of crystal ball. It's right. like he's a fortune teller. Well, were he to look into Italy's future, <laughs> what dark things he would have seen. Hmm. We'll touch on that in a second, but let's just finish off our World Cup thoughts here with a salute to Marcello Lippi, yeah. who was a divisive figure, as, as indeed most Juventus managers end up being, and came back for a deeply unsuccessful second stint with the Azzurri in 2010, or for the 2010 World Cup, but was the decisive factor, do you think, in this World Cup win? I think so, in, insofar as um, managing a very difficult situation. Um, you've not only got the expectations that come with managing a country which has such a great record in World Cups, but Calciopoli, the players who, in Totti's case, was coming back from a very serious injury. You know, you lose Nesta early on, you get De Rossi, Materazzi sent off, you have to deal with that. And just the boldness of some of his you know, substitutions at key moments, you know, not being negative or defensive at all, but really going for it. Um, and yeah deservedly had one of his Cuban cigars afterwards. Absolutely. All right. Well, we'll talk about the current mob after this. You're listening to Galazzo, the totally Italian football show. Well, here we are. How many years now is it on? 12 years on. 12 years, yeah. And uh, Buffon still playing now at PSG, of course. Or not. (laughs) Or not. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, a lot. It's funny how many of the team have gone into management themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Pippo Inzaghi, Rino Gattuso, yeah. Fabio Cannavaro. Um, Cannavaro's in China. Yeah. yeah. Massimo Oddo was obviously um, coach of Udinese last year. You had, uh, well, you've currently got Nesta yeah. at Perugia, surprisingly, yeah. after his Miami experience, mm-hmm. and uh, Fabio Grosso himself. Yeah, who went from Bari to um, Hellas Verona. Right. There's uh, Simone Badone, who was the ping pong champion of that particular tournament. Beat Buffon in the final. And Buffon uh, turned around and kicked out at something. Um, and it was a glass partition wall in their hotel in Duisburg, um, which uh, which sent Lippi into all sorts of fits of anger because wow. you know yeah. he could have covered, severed the tendons in his leg. So. Good God. Yeah. yeah. Barone, by the way, is now a youth coach at Sassuolo. Is he? Yeah. Passato, who we mentioned before with the you know unfortunate business of, of how Calciopoli affected him, is... is um, Coaching at youth level with Juventus. Yeah, he was uh, he was at Villa Perosa. What about Yaquinta, who you mentioned? <laughs> yeah, Yaquinta, um, who, I mean, for this tournament, I had a great story because he's from Calabria, just outside of Crotone. And uh, a bit like uh, Grosso was playing for a, a smaller club at the time. And uh, his 70-year-old nonna insisted on, on getting the train to Calabria and then his, would drive with his dad to every game during the World Cup. In, in Germany? In Germany, yeah. We would go on this complete road trip um, to go and see uh, their boy play. But yeah, Jaquinta was uh, last in the news for um, uh, for well, being alleged to have been a, uh, uh, caught up in an investigation with the Endrangheta, the, the wow. Calab- Calabrian Mafia. So um, yeah, we'll have to see what happens there. Indeed. All right. Meantime, this weekend marked the first Italy side not to feature mm-hmm. someone from that World Cup winning squad of 2006 vintage and perhaps not uncoincidentally 
Two very disappointing results. They scraped a 1-1 draw at home to Poland in Bologna on Friday night. Yeah. And then Monday saw them lose 1-0 away in Portugal. Roberto Mancini very much at the start here, but the Portugal game regarded as a real step backwards by the press, not just because it saw him return to the 4-2-4, which... Giampiero Ventura, the, the previous manager, was roundly ridiculed for using. Yeah, I mean, to go back to the Poland game, I think there was this feeling uh, throughout the Ventura era that Italy were best suited to playing 4-3-3. Why isn't he playing Jorginho? Why isn't he playing Insigne? And if you play them, all of Italy's problems will be solved. Mm. And I think that's been shown that there's no quick fix. Even doing that, it's not going to suddenly see Italy return to, to greatness. And then for the Portugal game, Mancini makes nine changes for a game that matters away to the European champions. Okay, a European championship uh, without Ronaldo. But, to but make- for example, leaving Chiellini and Bonucci out. Yeah. Um, so I think Mancini, well, I don't want to sort of uh, get on his back already, bears a lot of responsibility for these two games. Because you look at his team selection for the Poland game, you know, he plays Zappacosta, who has is not featuring at Chelsea. Pellegrini, who's hardly featured at Roma this season. Gagliardini, who's been left out of Inter's Champions League squad. Balotelli, who was suspended at the start of the season and hasn't done some pre-season because Nice expected him to go to to Marseille or somewhere else. Mm. And then he makes nine changes from that side. And again, um, how can you expect any kind of continuity away in in games that you're facing relegation now? And his response to that was, we have to take risks. You know, there's going to be some short-term pain for long-term gains. Right. Like, well, He's been quite open about the fact that his real target is qualifying for Euro 2020 hmm. by the qualifications which start in March. So it's almost like he didn't get the memo about no. Nations League actually being yeah. something to aim for. And th- this, is, this is a route into it. That said, the fact that Mancini's predecessor also couldn't get a tune out of these Azuri suggests that there might be a slight problem with the actual talent within the team. Uh, almost a, a historic dearth of, of talented Italian players. I mean, there are, there is a generation coming through, but there's no one I don't think that would really... You know, when you say, look at uh, how the Spanish got on against Croatia, uh, th- th- there's nobody really of that standard that you see coming through. I, I think that's fair to say. Yeah, no, I, th- I think that's fair. Well, why that would be is, is one of the big questions now. And, and we actually asked a friend of Golazzo and product of the Italian youth system, the Vivaio, Richard Hughes, what he made of it. Probably what was happening at the smaller clubs around about the turn of the century and, and well into the noughties was the fact that there were more uh, perhaps second-rate foreigners that were coming into the, the Italian game um, and therefore we're now feeling those effects or we did actually for the, for the decade subsequent to that because, um, yes, Totti was still playing, De Piero was still playing, but they were not producing the other ones. And that's probably coming from so, um, the, the Vivai perhaps we're focusing more on signing players from abroad that could just help them stay in Serie A. And uh, I, I'm a positive person. And, I'm, and perhaps looking at people like Bernadeschi and Chiesa and Caldara, I do think that there are signs that they are producing players again that will one day perform in a national team more admirably than the, than the current crop. So it, it comes down to the ability of players and the production of players. But I do think at, you met Atalanta is obviously a club close to my heart. And the, the focus that they put on uh, the youth team recently, I think, is uh, is something for for others to emulate and to follow. And because they've had success at first team level, I think that will just that will filter down. Whether we we, we produce the likes of uh, the players I mentioned earlier, though, James, that's that's another thing. Those are 
some of them should be once in a generation type players, shouldn't they? But the so to produce them again in bulk is unrealistic. How pessimistic, James, should we be about Italy's prospects of avoiding relegation to the second tier? I think we should be pessimistic about that. But big picture, while there isn't an outstanding world-class player um, yet to emerge or turn into one, um, because I think there are some hopes that Chiesa could, could, could be that, if you look at the, the generation coming through on the 17s, which the European Championship final and lose, I think, in, in extra time or penalties, under-19s did exactly the same and lost to Mbappe's France. And the under-20s reached the, uh, finished third at the World Cup. So there is, there is a, um, I think, the reforms that were put in place at youth level by Arrigo Saki back in the Prandelli era are at least leading to a fairly consistent production of talent. But there is this nurture-nature debate there where can the Italian Football Federation really claim to have manufactured Buffon or manufactured Totti or Del Piero? I don't think they can. I think those are once-in-a-generation players who just happen to come together at that time. And for all this foreigner debate about there being only 39% of the players who played the first three match days of the season in Serie A were Italian, I still think that if they were world-class players, it wouldn't. if they were Italian, they would still get their game time. And we're seeing that with Donnarumma, we're seeing that with Chiesa. If mm. you're good enough, you will play. So I don't think that's... I think that's a, a, a bit of a red herring. Um, so I think it's, it's, it's just one of those things. And th- it's also true that Italians are getting game time in other leagues as well. Yeah. So um, I guess it's a two-way street. All right. Well, fingers crossed then for when the Azuri return in October... This weekend, of course, club football will be back with Juventus taking on Sassuolo in a yeah. first v second clash. You got Inter Parma for uh, for those who like that kind of thing. Cagliari Milan, yeah, oh yeah, Crespo, interesting one. Uh, Cagliari Milan, which could be a tricky game though for the Rossoneri. Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess the the standout fixture is uh, Napoli Fiorentina, uh, two great footballing yeah. sides. Which is and... where Napoli lost the Scudetto last year. Ah, right, mm, okay, yeah. yeah. Um, we'll, we'll talk about that next week. To play us out, though, we, we've been talking about music, and I think it's a conversation we're going to continue in Thursday's Totally Football Show. But we had a bunch of people uh, getting in touch to say, uh, to mention songs that we'd, we'd forgotten about, like, for example, <laughs> uh, the Luca Toni uh, song, Luca Se Per Me Numero Uno, yeah, which is a classic. And then this. This is from Chiacchierata Calcistica, who says, Here's one close to my own heart. Salentino, Ska, Tarantella, Dancehall, Reggae, Funksters, Sud Sound System, with Miccoli, a band that you've seen live, is that right? Yeah, yeah, in Rome. All right. And this this really is a classic. Are there better songs about footballers out there? Possibly. As I say, we'll explore that in Thursday's Totally Football Show. But this one's plenty good enough for now to play out this edition of Golazzo. James, many thanks for being with us. Thanks yeah, for uh, to Richard Hughes as well. And uh, to you for listening. For now, from all of us here, it's a Rivadurci. <laughs> You've been listening to Galazzo, a Muddy Knees Media production. For sales and advertising, email sales at muddykneesmedia.com and make sure you check out our other podcasts this season. The Totally Football League show with Caroline Barker and the Totally Scottish Football Show with Andrew Slater.